Almighty God, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, grant us great faith and hope in Jesus Christ this morning. Jesus Christ, who is our sin bearer, that he may present us holy and blameless before the presence of your glory with great joy on that awaited day that is in the future that we pray for when we pray that your kingdom come. So grant us, Father, I pray, hearts that desire to be cleansed, not by our own means. Pray, Father, that you will grant us repentance for our desire to be moral or good and think that that's what you want from us. I ask, Father, that you will help us this morning as your people to come to the cross and so, in so doing, take sin as seriously as you do. And to be able to to be able to be freed from the guilt and sorrow and pain and death that sin brings to each and every one of us. That we may be free. Free to live by your grace and not by the letter of the law. We ask that you'll do this by the power of your spirit this morning that you might be glorified. And it's in Christ's holy name that we pray. Amen. Amen. This message this morning is concerning a life of purity. A life lived in purity. I fear that we may not understand the Weight or the gravity of a life that is necessarily lived holy and blameless before God. So let me read a few verses that are from the Old Testament that may give us a sense of the value of a pure life. Job asked, Job in Job chapter 4, verse 17, he asked these questions Can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? It's the questions that Job asked in our Old Testament. David in the Psalms, Psalm 24, he says this, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? Who's the one that can come before God? Verse 4, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, 
who does not lift his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. It's only the clean and the pure that are able to ascend the hill and be with their God and our Maker. Psalm 73, truly God is good to Israel. He's good to those who are pure in heart. Proverbs 16, all the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes. We think we're okay. We think we're okay compared to everything we see around us. We're not all that bad. We're, we're indeed um, sort of pure. We're a variant of purity in our own eyes, according to Proverbs 16. All the ways of man are pure in his own eyes. But listen to this. But the Lord weighs the spirit. You see, we may assume that we're pure by the standard that we may set for ourselves. But at the end of the day, the standard that needs to be set is God. Proverbs 20, verse 9. Who can say, I have made my own heart pure. I am clean from my sin. Who can say that? I think it's me challenging you this morning toward purity. It's like challenging a fish to not be wet. <laughs> that's, that's how impossible it is for us to challenge it. And I think that's exactly what Job and David and and Solomon in Proverbs, I think that's exactly what they were getting at when they realized this thing called purity is just not possible. We can't pull ourselves into that because it's impossible for us to, to go to this thing called purity when we don't even really know what it is. However, this purity is incredibly important. Jesus himself says in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the pure in heart. What's their advantage? What's the advantage of the one who is pure in heart? They will see God. Blessed are pure in heart, for they shall see God. You see, friends, we will not see God unless we obtain to this purity. Well, history, and specifically Christian history, has seen this very thing. And men and women throughout history has taken up this call to purity, to stand before God pure, and they've sought to do it in various different ways. We know of the Pharisees of the Old Testament and into the New Testament. The Pharisees were strict law keepers. They were ones who sought purity in all the different aspects of their life. Um, I was reminded specifically we're, we're working through, if you notice in our worship journal here, working through memorizing the Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9, which is Hero Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's called the Shema. Jews, even today, will quote that. A Pharisee, however, before they would quote the Shema, because of their rigid desire to be pure, there had to be a series of events that took place before they would even quote the Shema. And I found this pretty interesting and it's connected to some of the things that uh, we're memorizing, so I thought this would be helpful for us to understand in way of their diligence to pursue purity. A Pharisee, an Orthodox Pharisee, would first have to relieve himself, then wash his hands up to his elbows, and then tie the paracletes, which are little boxes with verses inside of them, onto their body in the places that they needed to be, 
These passages, these verses would have to be Exodus 13, 1 through 10, verses 11 through 16, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9, Deuteronomy 11, 13 through 21. Tie all those boxes, those paracletes to their body. And only then would they be able to say or speak or to pray the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And quote that passage. The Essenes were in line with uh, the Pharisees, but the Pharisees were liberal to the Essenes. The Essenes, they said, you know, the, the Pharisees aren't strict enough. They're not pure enough. So the Essenes stepped it up a notch. Every day, they would have to... Uh, uh, ritualistically cleanse themselves. They would have to bathe their entire bodies. Now, to most of us, that doesn't sound too odd, but to a nine-year-old, that's terrifying. All right? And, uh, and the idea is that, that the, they would have to cleanse themselves every day. If they ever spoke to uh, someone in a harsh way or um, offended someone in some way, they would have to cleanse themselves again and go through the entire ritual. And it would usually take close to an hour to do. The Essenes thought the Pharisees were not pure enough. Well, as we get into Christian history, and interestingly enough, also history of all kinds of different faiths, we know that during the times of the 200s and 300s A.D., there became a, a movement among the religious people, spiritual people, called the monastics. And these people were basically hermits. They went out away from all civilization, and they sought purity. And you're wondering where I, 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 This is still the introduction. We're getting, we're getting to, the, to the message. They sought purity. Some of you may recognize names like Origen and Jerome and Augustine. All of these guys were willing to go out and be away from civilization, to sit in a cave and to study the things of God and to, in so doing, seek a life of purity. These monastics would go and hide, and what they realized is that when they get out in the cave, that the very wicked, evil thing that they were seeking to leave, they took with them because their very heart was the thing that they were seeking to hide from. The monastics thought that they could find purity by going out somewhere set apart from everybody else. They thought that somehow purity was connected to a place. And they were not correct in that. They thought that if they could continue to practice what's called asceticism, which is basically continuing to bring up and dig up and root out all the different sins in their life and continue to... Um, um, create an incredible amount of discipline around their life and even, and even punish themselves for their sin, that somehow that would alleviate their sin and somehow bring them closer to purity. Not true. This was an effort that they did day in and day out. Didn't happen. Somehow their goal was to have this purity where there would be a time and a place where they could get far enough away and hide themselves enough, pray enough, spend enough time doing the things that are disciplined that somehow they can have a heart that was pure. They, could, they can reach this utopia here on earth that would allow them to have the purity that they sought after. So they sought this purity by the places they were going, by the continual self-denial that they went through, by the promises or the idea that they could maybe have a utopia here on earth. And in line of that, I think what they were getting at was this very thing, and that is that none of those things would, were able to give them the purity that they desired. We see relics of this monasticism around our world today. As you travel specifically over in Europe, we see all kinds of monasteries. 
all kinds of buildings and places. And this wasn't just Christianity. There was all kinds of faiths that created these monasteries where people would go off and, and, and seek purity of soul and heart. You see, they take verses like this. How can we get close to God? Well, in order for us to get close to God, we have to be pure. In order to be pure, then we have to discipline ourselves and set ourselves into a rigid place and a rigid time and have all kinds of things around us in order to approach our God. And so often, that's exactly how we understand this thing called purity. This morning, as we approach our text, we find that God's people were seeking purity as well. Maybe not through all kinds of things that we mentioned earlier, but specifically through these rituals and rites, these regulations. Notice Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1. Verse 1, it says, Not even the first covenant had regulations for worship. And uh, Excuse me. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. There was a place they could go to meet with God. There were regulations that they had to go through, these rituals, these things that they had to accomplish in order to come and approach their God. This morning, as we're closing out Hebrews chapter 9, we're going to be looking at verses 23 through 28, and we're going to be looking at this idea of purity. How can one become pure? Not just externally. If you will, look with me at verse 14. 13 and 14. Verses 13 and 14 of chapter 9. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, in other words, if these blood and, this blood of goats and bulls that were this blood of theirs were sprinkled on people there in the Old Testament and it would cleanse their outward flesh, their outward circumstances, cleanse that, verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, Offered himself without blemish to God. This is the phrase. Purify our conscience. It's just one thing to get clean. It's another thing to purify our conscience. From dead works to serve the living God. See, that's what the, that's what the monastics missed. Is that they, were, they were disciplining their, their lives. They were buffering their bodies only to realize that they were able to only externally cleanse their sel- themselves. They weren't able to purify their conscience. And so our passage this morning, the pastor that's preaching this book, the book of Hebrews, he's preaching to a body of Hebrews, a, a group of Jewish Christians, and he's saying, how then is it that one can have a purified conscience? Because in our passage that I just read in verse 14, it just says that it was, um, it was how much more the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offers himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works. He, God does that through the person of Christ, but how exactly does that get accomplished? This morning, that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at how can one be pure? How can one be pure before God, our maker? And I want us to notice this in three particular points this morning. Verses 23 through 28. I want us to notice this in three points. How can we become pure in conscience? And I want us to notice it in three points. Point number one, the place of purity. Verses 23 and 24. The place of purity. Point number two, the permanence of of purity. Point number two, the permanence of purity. Verses 25 through 26. And then point number three, the promise of purity. The promise of purity. Verses 27 and 28. The place 
the permanence and the promise of purity. Let's begin with the place of purity. Verses 23 and 24. Notice with me, if you will, in your Bibles, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 23. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with the better sacrifices than these. You see here the necessity of this purity. We see here in verse 23, it speaks of the fact that in the in the Old Testament, it was necessary for these copies, meaning these furnishings, these things in the tabernacle that we spoke of in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 9, it was necessary for these, these, these furnishings, these copies of the heavenly things, this, this picture, this image of what heaven was to be representing, this, this, these tabernacles were representing the heavens. These copies were to be purified, and it was necessary for them to be purified, according to verse 23, with these rites. What were these rites? Well, we see the rites specifically in verse 21. In verse 21, it says, And in the same way, he, meaning Moses, sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. These were the rites that they had. They had this blood, and they sprinkled it on all the furnishings inside the tabernacle to so purify these things so that they could come into the, into the tabernacle and speak on behalf of God. But what's interesting here in verse 23 is he's saying, These are the copies These are the shadows. These are the images of what is real. The reality is not in the tabernacle. It's not even in these rites of sprinkling these blood of goats and bulls. He goes on in verse 23 and he says, It was necessary for these things to be cleansed or purified with these rites, but, verse 23, the heavenly things themselves, which are the real things, they need to be cleansed or purified with better sacrifices than these. The heavenly things need to be cleansed or purified with better sacrifices than these. Does that mean that heaven is somehow impure? That there's, a, there's sin in heaven? Well, if you and I go there, yes. <laughs> the question here isn't that heaven is, is sinful or there's sin in heaven that needs to be purified. But in order for us to enter into heaven, we need to be cleansed and purified in order to be there and not to taint heaven with sin. And so it is required that there be better sacrifices for those who enter into the heavenly places. Better sacrifices than the blood that was shed by goats and bulls. Verse 24. How is it then that Christ is to be the sacrifice that purifies us as we enter into heaven? How is it that it happens? What well, says in verse 24 that Christ has entered. Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are the copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. You see, this made sense to the person who was a Jewish Christian who knew that the high priest himself was one who, the way he gave access to God's people, from God to God's people, was the high priest would take this blood and he would go into the tabernacle, he would enter into it, and sprinkle this blood with these rites in order to sanctify and so that he can have access to God, so that he can speak to God on behalf of his people. And so cleanse his people. So bring purity to his people and purification. So how is it that these better sacrifices are going to be are going to purify in heaven? It says here, Christ entered, but he and he distinguishes here Christ's high priest role of entering into the tabernacle or entering into the heavens, he distinguishes it from the high priest entering into the tabernacle in two ways. First, he says, not 
he distinguishes this, uh, this entering of Christ as opposed to the entering of the high priest into the tabernacle in this way, not into the holy places made with hands. In other words, the tent or the tabernacle. Christ isn't going into the tabernacle or into the temple, not into a place made with hands, which are only the copy of the true things. In other words, this is only the, that tent and that tabernacle is only the copy. We've talked about that before. But where does Christ enter? It says, verse 24, for Christ has entered into heaven itself. Christ is going into the very heavens themselves. So that's different than the high priest, is it not? The high priest went with trembling and fear into the tabernacle on behalf of God's people. Christ goes into heaven itself. And that's different from the high priest. But notice this. The issue is not that Christ is in heaven and that's it. That's the end of the sentence. But it goes on and it says that Christ entered into heaven itself, verse 24 now to appear in the presence of God. See, the point here is that it's not just that Christ went into heaven and now he's up there kind of milling around. But Christ went and stood before God himself, very, into the very presence of God. Christ is standing before the thrice holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. He's before the very presence of God. Christ has gone where no one can go. He's gone into the very presence of God, and he is standing before the very holiness, uninterrupted, unspotted glory of God. He's standing in the very presence of God. Now, that's, that's amazing. But you know what's breathtaking? Our verse says, For Christ has entered into the heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. On our behalf. You see, friends, in Christ we are before the very presence of God. In Christ we have access to God our Maker. Through Christ, we are brought to Him. God sees us. God knows us. God receives us. Our holy, holy, holy God, who is is completely pure in all that He can see. He cannot look upon sin or evil. And because of Christ being there on our behalf, we are able to enter into the very presence of God. Holy and blameless. Now let me share with you, as I was meditating on this, why I think this is hard for us to, honestly, to even get excited about. To even wonder at. Because I feel that distance like you do. I mean, don't you, don't you feel the distance? I mean, heaven and Christ in heaven on our behalf is so far away. I fear that flat tires and sick babies and insurance and mortgages numb us. It, it suppresses with all of these other things that are in the world. It suppresses 
our ability to, to, to look into the holiness of God and long for it. Let me tell you something this morning that I have to remind myself of and you have to remind yourself of. And let me, let me say it to you so that you can, you can begin preaching this to you yourself. Our God is satisfying. He will satisfy your soul. You know why we don't believe that? Because we, we have a part of us that thinks, if I can make a little more in my job, then I can be satisfied. Or I can have a little more insurance and security, I can be satisfied. Or if I can get rid of this sickness or this ailment in my, in my hip or in my chest, then I can be satisfied. Friends, all of those are vain pursuits. God is the only one that can satisfy. And we're going after these things. I fear, I, I liken it to gazing at a, at a birthday candle and, and glorying in the wonder of the beauty of the spark of that birthday candle and the sun is rising over the Atlantic behind me. And I'm just so enamored with the birthday candle that I forget that there's a, there's a sunrise that, that's, that just puts this to shame. But I'm too busy looking at my birthday candle. You know what? Because I can hold that. I can touch it. Let me give you a more techie way of understanding this. You're, you're consumed with your Facebook status while you're standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon. You see, you see it's the same thing. We're so... C.S. Lewis said, the issue is not that our desires are too weak. Our desires, every one of us have an immense desire to be satisfied. But we're too easily satisfied. We're willing to take the trite things of the world and say, yep, I can live for that. I can live for this. Instead of seeing that everything that we have is to point us to the glory of God. When I preach and, I, and we read passages like verse 23, excuse me, verse 24, and it says that Christ is entering into heaven itself. And He entered into heaven itself and appears before God on our behalf. Everything in us that is in tune with the Spirit of God, you should say, yes, that's where I'm going to be. That's where I want to be. That's what I desire to be satisfied with. And that is my God, who is my maker. We don't believe He can satisfy us. We believe we can, He can help us. He can encourage us. He can uphold us. But we're not convinced He can satisfy us. Brothers and sisters, I want you to turn away from the birthday candle. This week, begin preaching to yourself, God, you alone can satisfy. Our frustrations, our discouragements, our unanswered prayers that we're kind of disturbed by, those are very good thermometers of what we really place our hope in and what we really want to be satisfied with. 
when we're discouraged and frustrated and we're praying and it doesn't seem like anything's happening, we're like, come on, God. Those are good indicators of what we're trying to be satisfied with. The place of our purity is before Almighty God. And friends, we are not pure. We have a thousand idols in our hearts. And according to a famous theologian, we, our hearts are idol factories. We make a new one every day. We're seeking after all kinds of other ambitions and other things. We're so quick to, to allow ourselves to go here and there instead of to say, let me rest again, let me come back again. I want to encourage you as a congregation, this, this matter of setting our soul, tuning our heart and our soul to be satisfied with God can't be done on your drive to work. It can't be done stuck in with five other things that you're multitasking in the moment. I want to encourage you as a congregation, set time aside regularly to think upon and to seek out and to pursue and say, Lord, my heart is so dry and dull. Lord, water my soul with your word. Go to the Psalms and begin praying those for yourself that you may be satisfied with God. Most of you don't have time because you're busy. Well, I have good news for you this morning. The Lord has given us a day It's called the Lord's Day. And he says, you know what? It's good for you at least once a week on the day that I've given to you to say, you know what? The things of this world need to be set aside to the degree that I'm able to just spend time pursuing my God, seeking his face, asking him to accomplish things in my heart that are just not there. I want to encourage you. If you have lost that day, if you've lost that time, in this busy schedule of yours, commit your heart on Lord's Day a few hours to just meditate and linger in prayer, not hit or miss prayers, not prayers in route, but linger with God in prayer, with your Bible open. Spend time with Him. Ask Him to water your soul. I think you'll find that the rest of your week will make it. You won't be behind just because you did that. In fact, you might even find that some things need to be realigned so that your lives may not be as busy as they need to be right now anyway. In fact, this is amazing, I realize it. Sometimes a really spiritual thing to do is to say no to things that come down the pipe that are coming into your life so that you can say yes to God and to pursue Him. I spent time on that point obviously because the Lord worked that in my heart this week of, you know, I'm so I'm running so hard let's be satisfied with God Christ has gone to the very heavens appeared in the presence of God on our behalf how do we get to God how do we, how do we, how do we become satisfied in who God is brothers and sisters come to Christ come to Christ Know that in Christ, we have all that God is. He's the radiance of the glory of God. When we come to Christ and we trust Him for who He is, we're we're being drawn into the very presence of God Himself. Come to Christ.
Point number two, the permanence of purity. The permanence of purity. Do you remember me talking about the monastics and how they felt like their lives had to be one of asceticism? I have to continue to beat myself up. I need to continue to lacerate my body and discipline this and, and continue to just, just, just place the guilt and the pain on me so that I can carry it, so I can realize the, the evil of it, so that I can remove it and become pure. Verse 25, speaking of the permanence of purity, verse 25 speaks of a second way that Christ was not like the high priest. The high priest went into the holy places, which were the copies of the things, the tabernacle, right? Jesus went into heaven itself before God in the presence of him. And so in that way, Christ was not like the high priest. Here's the second way that Christ is not like the high priest. Verse 25, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with the blood, with blood, not his own. So this is the second way that the Christ was not like the high priest. In this way, he was not like the high priest. He did not go in and offer himself repeatedly. It says here that a high priest enters into the holy places every year. That was the Day of Atonement, also known as Yom Kippur. He entered into this tent, this tabernacle, and he goes in and he offers blood that's not his own. It's the blood of goats and bulls. These rites and rituals. Christ did not offer himself repeatedly. He did not come over and over and over again. Verse 26, For then he would have had to offer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. In other words, if Christ was the one who would purify us, then it makes sense that if he's the one that needs to do that and he has to do that repeatedly, if he was going to be doing it repeatedly, then then Christ should have come onto the scene not when he did, which was during the time of the Roman Empire, but back in Genesis chapter 3. As soon as they threw Adam and Eve out of the garden, Jesus should have walked right in and said, okay, here we are. From now on, I'm going to repeatedly offer myself so that God's people can be pure. That's what it's saying here when it speaks of the fact that it should have that if, if he was going to be repeatedly uh, repeatedly offering his sacrifice, he should have started back at the foundation of the world. Verse twenty six, right in the middle. But but as it is, as it is, Christ has not offered himself repeatedly. You see, as it is. Christ came to earth, lived a sinless life, and went to the cross. As it is, it was appointed, excuse me, as it is, he has appeared, listen to this, once for all. He came on earth, he lived a perfect life, he died on the cross, he rose again, once for all. When Christ in in the Gospel of John, when he died on the cross, and he cried out to God, and he said, It is finished! He meant it. He accomplished, he took upon himself the penalty of sin at that point. And when he was done receiving the penalty and the wrath of God for all of his church, for all time, Christ said, it is finished. It has been accomplished. He appeared on earth once for all, once for all time. And it says here, at the end of the ages, so through the Old Testament, there was age after age after age after age, anticipating the Messiah to come. And Christ came at the end of the ages, 
When he came, he consummated all the ages and everything now rests on him. We see that some in our calendar even today. It's a testimony of, the, of God, Christ, being the center of all of history. It says that at the end of the ages, he came once for all. He appeared, and notice what it says he did. Why did he come? Why did Christ come at the end of the ages? To put away sin. To nullify sin. To remove or set aside sin. You see, sin was the problem. We don't, we don't often think that the problem really is sin. It's all kinds of other things. No, according to God, our problem is sin. He says here that when Christ came at the end of the ages, He appeared once for all to do something, and that is to set aside or to put away sin. How did Christ do that? By the sacrifice of Himself. Do you see that there? Christ did that by the sacrifice of himself. There's only one way we can be pure before our maker and our creator, and that is through the blood of Jesus Christ. When he came, he died on the cross once for all, at the end of ages, to put away sin. How did he do it? By the sacrifice of his son. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. 1 Peter 3.18 Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Once for all. Once for all. There's, there are those of you who this morning need to hear the fact, need to hear this truth, that Christ put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. You need to hear that again this morning. Because you're constantly reminded of your sin. And when you remind yourself of your sin, you go again to the pain and the guilt and the sorrow that it brought you years ago or maybe even last week. And so the way you handle your sin is you come back to it over and over again. And you place it back onto your shoulders. You scourge yourself, if you will. You say, you know what? I'm, I'm so sinful. I continue to come back to this. This is such a wicked thing. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to linger on it just so that it, would, it, it, it will beat me down to remind me that I can't do this again. You're constantly coming back and re-experiencing the pain. Re-experiencing that sorrow. Preaching to yourself, you know what? I don't deserve the blessings that God has given to me in Christ. I need to, I need to experience the pain and the sorrow. God has a big, big stick, and Him taking that stick to me is justified. And so I'm just going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to sit and linger on the pain and suffering and sorrow that my sin has upon me. Saints, I want you to hear something this morning. Christ appeared to take away your sin. To take it away by His sacrifice, not yours. Your coming back to it is like a dog returning to his vomit. Friends, brothers and sisters, saints, there's no benefit in you lingering in the pain and the sorrow and the agony that your sin 
has produced. Christ has taken it away. Christ has carried it himself. You trying to carry it again is saying that Christ and his sacrifice was not sufficient. You need to bring yours along with it. I need to sacrifice as well. It's God's sacrifice in Christ and my sacrifice of loathing and hating and bringing my sin and scourging myself because of my sin. This passage says that he has taken it away. This morning I want to say to you, let it go. In Christ, let it go. Because Christ has removed that sin by His sacrifice. He does not need your help to remove that sin. Let me give you just a a little bit of... Let me take a, a right turn here for just a moment. This understanding of Christ's continual, repetitive sacrificing is not just hardwired in our hearts so that when we sin, we want to constantly go back to it as if we can somehow add to Christ's ability to save us. And if we're really sorrowful and we, and we, and we beat ourselves and go into an ascetic, uh, an, an ascetic kind of lifestyle, then somehow God will love us more or somehow our sin is really forgiven. This very thing is, is wired into all of us and, and it's also propagated in systems of religion. Some of you have heard of the phrase and others of you have not. I want to mention it to you so you'll know. In the Roman Catholic Church, for example, there's an understanding called the perpetual sacrifice. Some of you have heard that phrase, some of you have not. Perpetual sacrifice is that Christ is not only died on the cross for our sin, but he didn't do it once for all. He does it perpetually. He's constantly sacrificing and re-sacrificing and re-sacrificing. In other words, he's constantly on the cross. That's why when we see Catholic crosses, what do we see on those? We see Christ still there because he is perpetually sacrificing himself for the sins of his people. A Protestant cross is a cross with no Jesus on it. You know what that says? It is finished. <laughs> he, has, he has been buried and raised. He's no longer on that cross. He no longer has to be sacrificed. Ledwig ought Ledwig Ott, O-T-T, is one of the leading Catholic theologians. He wrote a Fundamentals of Catholic Dogma back in 1955. And in it, he says this. In the sacrifice of the Mass, in other words, the Mass, the taking of what we would, when we see it, we'd think Lord's Supper. In the taking, in the, he says, in the sacrifice of the Mass, just by that statement, it's amazing because he's mentioning that this Mass is actually a sacrifice In the sacrifice of the Mass and in the sacrifice of the cross, the the sacrificial gift to us is identical. In other words, when when they take, when they when they give Mass, they believe Christ now is now re-sacrificing himself. It's the sacrifice of the cross, the sacrifice of the Mass is identical. He goes on. And he speaks of, and I've got a longer quote, but I'm not going to mention it, but he goes on to speak of the fact that the idea is this perpetual, this perpetual sacrifice is constantly going back. Christ has to constantly come back and re-up what he did on the cross. Now, why do I say that? I say this for this very reason. We in our own hearts, in the Catholic Church, and their dogma, 
are naturally bent to want to contribute to our standing before God. We're naturally bent to say there has to be more. When I say to you that your sin has been put away, your sin has been put away by Christ, that's not enough, is it? I mean, you, you realize the gravity of your sin and you're thinking, there's no way it could be just put away. There's no way that Christ, through His sacrifice, now has just removed it from me. Friends, He has. There's no need for you to come back and to, and to continue to, to, to think on it and meditate on it and beat yourself up about the sins of your past. If you brought them to Christ, they have been taken away. Why? Why is it that we constantly want to contribute to our standing before God? Brothers and sisters, let me, let me say this clearly. As it is right now, He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages, 2,000 years ago, and He's put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. Period. Period. So this permanence of purity. In Christ we are pure. And friends, that's permanent. That doesn't get undone when we sin and then we have to come back. Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is, we are permanently pure before our holy God. Point number three. The promise of purity. The promise of purity. Verses 27, 28. And just as it is, pointed for man to die once, And after that comes judgment, so Christ, having offered once, been offered once to bear the sins of many. For just as it is appointed for man to die once. It's interesting here. We have an interesting view of death, I believe, today. This passage tells us something that's very profound, I think, something we need to remember. And that is, in one sense, death is natural. Death is natural. It's amazing to me the number of people who put so much energy and effort into never wanting to die. I mean, I'm not saying live carefree. But our aim in life isn't to not die, but to die well. Our aim is not to, let's see if we can live forever. Our aim is to live faithfully. You see, death is natural in one sense. Because as this passage says, it is appointed for man to die. Now, I don't need to make the point. Every one of us in this room will die. The the hospitals have pretty much told us death rates at 100%. It, It happens. We've been studying Ecclesiastes lately as men on Saturday morning in the Bible study. It's talking about the fact that it is more wise to go to a funeral than to a festival. Because when you go to a funeral, you're being made aware of who you really are and that your life is short and that all is vanity apart from God. Go to a festival and you begin believing that the world's about the things of this world. Go to a funeral and there's wisdom. Death in one sense is natural. However... Scripture does teach us that death is unnatural in this sense, that death is the fruit or the result of sin. You see, we're not, we're not more human because we die. We would be more human if we never died. We're less human because we're sinful. 
So there is a sense where death is not natural. And Scripture helps us find a balance here. I think Paul hits it right on the head when he says this. For to me, to live is Christ. And to die is gain. Now, I'm going to let you read Philippians chapter 1, 21 through 26 to get a better idea of that. But let me be clear here. If you're living for anything other than Christ, or if you're living to live, or if you're wanting to live longer for any, per, in any personal ambition or desire, or if you're just wanting to live longer because you, want to, um, you don't want to cross that threshold, then you're not living for Christ. And there's only one reason to live, friends, and that is for Christ. There's only one faithful biblical reason to live, and that is for Christ. And in so doing, we can say that when we die, there's great gain. My fear is that so many of us, even here, even us Christians, the reason we won't, don't want to die, because our heart is so fettered to the things of this world. The Lord has blessed us, hasn't he? Each and every one of us. We have blessings in this world. We have loved ones. We have houses. We have things. We have jobs. We have um, so many things that the Lord has blessed us. And the Lord has said, listen, I'm going to bless you with these things. I'm going to show you my love with these things. And you know what we do? We exchange worship of the Creator for worship of the creation. Romans chapter 1. We turn it around and we say, this is the reason I should live. No, to live is Christ. And if we're not living for the things of this world, though we see them as blessings from God, then to die is what? It's gain. Let's get the perspective and understand that here it says, it is appointed for every man to die once. Now, it's kind of like falling off a cliff. Any of you, some of you have gone skydiving, and um, some of you have done that, and some of you say, I will never do that. Why? Because I'm, a, I'm, I'm afraid of what? Heights, right? Heights have never hurt anybody. It's the ground that hurts people, right? It's not the falling that even hurts anybody. I mean, really, unless you're hitting something on the way down, the falling never hurt anybody. It's the sudden stop at the end that kind of sets everything off. People say, I'm scared of heights. People say, I'm scared of death. Death is not to be feared, friends. Judgment is where that fear should reside. It says in our passage, it is appointed for man to once die, and after that comes judgment. It says in Revelation 20, verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence, excuse me, from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead and the great and the small standing before the throne, and the books were open. That's what we should fear. That's what we should be concerned with. Is that day when we stand before a holy God. And there's only one way to stand before that holy God. Can we stand before God with our abilities? Hey God, look at all that we did. We built this, we did this, we accomplished this. God isn't too concerned about that. Are we going to stand before God with our accomplishments and our, our opportunities that we took advantage of? Can we stand before God and say, you know what, Lord? These were my circumstances. This is the hand I was dealt, and it wasn't that good. These are the people you put me around. The woman you gave to be with me, she's the one that gave me the fruit. Think that'll hold up before God one day? 
We're only going to stand before God if we're pure, holy, and righteous. Not if we're just better than the next guy that was ahead of us. There's not a bell curve to get into heaven. Either you're righteous or you're not. That's the kind of weight that this pastor realized was on his people when he, when he said, verse 27, and he says, And just as this is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. A lot of times that verse is quoted, period. That's, that's what's said. But notice there's not a period there. Verse 28 says, So Christ. Because of that dire circumstance we find ourselves in, that it is appointed once for man to die, and then comes judgment. So Christ... Having been offered once, what did Christ do when he was offered once? He bore the sins of many. He bore the sins of many. This reminds us of the great weight and seriousness that God takes sin. God doesn't look at our sin and say, you know what, you were trying your best, you were really trying hard, and you just messed up again, so I'm going to just pretend like it didn't happen. We heard the weight and the gravity of our sin when Mike read for us Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we were healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. Listen. We've turned everyone to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Christ bore our sins. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be counted righteous. Last part of Isaiah 53. And he shall bear our iniquities. He shall bear our iniquities. You see, we don't need an example of somebody that's that to, to, to set for us so that we can live good. We need a sin bearer. We need one who can carry our sin for us, can carry that burden, can take it off of us and carry it for himself. It says in verse 28 that he's going to bear our sins for many and he will appear a second time. And at that second appearance, it says he will not deal with sin. He will not come that second time for the purpose of dealing with sin, but instead to save people. To save his people. Our statement of faith says, We believe that the end of the world is approaching, and that the last day Christ will ascend from heaven and raise the dead from the grave in final retribution. That a solemn separation will take place, that the wicked will be judged to endless punishment and the righteous to endless joy. And that the judgment will fix forever the final state of men in heaven or in hell on principles of righteousness. We need a sin bearer. We need a sin bearer. In the previous point, I talked about the fact that so many of us like to come back to our sin like a dog returns to its vomit. No profit there. But you think, you think that if I come back to my sin and grovel in it, that somehow there can be more serious, more stringent repentance, and therefore God can somehow can, can, can purify me by lingering on my sin. But now this is what I want to do. 
Some of you are very tender in your conscience, and that's what you do. You come back to your sin, and you seek to grovel in it. You never feel like you have done enough to please God. But there's others of you this morning, and this is who I want to speak to at this point, who think far too lightly of your sin. You hardly ever come back to your sin. In fact, you've got this idea of sin as being something more like um, mess-ups or mistakes, not violation against the very character of God. You see, when I read passages like, He bore our griefs, He was pierced for our transgressions, He was crushed for our iniquities, on Him the chastisement that brought us peace, and His wounds has made us healed. Does it make sense to you? Because sin to you is something that's light. It has no weight. It has no seriousness. My point I want to make to you this morning is that you have an appointment. You have an appointment this morning that you will go to for just as it is appointed for man to die once and then comes judgment. You have an appointment to stand before a holy God and your definition of purity, righteousness, goodness, morality that you think is okay will not stand. It will not stand. You're avoiding your sin. You're covering up your sin. You think, well, if, if nobody else knows about my sin but God then he'll, he'll just forget it. It's not true. You're avoiding and you're covering up of your sin doesn't do what needs to be done. You know what needs to be done with sin? It needs to be born. We need a sin bearer. We need a savior. And this morning I want to encourage you, if you're taking sin far too lightly, I want to encourage you, come to Christ who is the sin bearer. Come to Him, for only He can take the sin upon Himself so that you will not have to accept it. See, some of you who don't take sin very seriously, you're very disciplined, rigid people. You live your lives according to what everybody else can see as a pretty good person. And you think everything is good because everybody else thinks you're okay. See, that's the problem with legalism or asceticism. The idea that I can, I can order my life in such a way that not only will everybody else be happy with me, but God will. Here's the point. You're, gonna, you're always taking sin far too lightly until you take your sin to Christ. No matter what you do to deal with your sin, you're dealing with it as if it's something far more trite than it actually is until you take it to Christ. If you try to keep it hidden try to avoid it, if you try to redefine it, if you try to continue to lacerate yourself with it, if you try to remind yourself of it, if you're doing all these other things with your sin, apart from taking it to Christ, you're not taking your sin seriously enough. Only in Christ can we find that He is the sin bearer. He's the one that can put it away. Only He can take it from us. So brothers and sisters, saints, come to Christ with your sin. Who will God save at the end? What does it say here in our passage? Those who eagerly await for heaven. Is that what it says? It's not what it says in my Bible. God will save those who eagerly 
wait for Him. See, friends, it's not about heaven. It's about God. John Piper says in his book, God is the Gospel. Listen, Christ did not die to forgive sinners who go on treasuring anything above seeing and savoring God. Read that again. Christ did not die to forgive sinners who go on treasuring anything above seeing and savoring God. And people who would be happy in heaven if Christ were not there will not be there. The gospel is not a way to get people to heaven. It is a way to get people to God. It's a way of overcoming every obstacle to the everlasting joy that only God can provide. If we don't want God above all things, we have not been converted by the gospel. And friends, if you've not been converted by the gospel, you are not eagerly awaiting for him. You're not wanting him. In other words, what you're thinking is, you know, hell, heaven, two options, I prefer heaven. There's a lot of people, maybe many of you here today, maybe you personally, in in the Spirit speaking to your heart right now, you're saying in your own heart, you're saying, that's me. I don't care at all about heaven. I could care less about being with God. I just don't want hell. I love my things on this earth. I want to live for them. God will save those who are eagerly waiting Him. Jude chapter 1. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless. The one who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless. Listen, before the presence of his glory with great joy. Not with fear, but with great joy. He is the only God, our Savior. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now, and forevermore. You see, this is our promise of purity. This is our eternal promise that we will be pure standing before our holy God because of what Christ has done for us. Oh, what a day that will be. Won't that be an awesome day? When Christ comes to bring his church, his bride, to himself... Pure and holy, not because of what we have done, but what what Christ has done for us. May our prayer be, saints. Come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. Let us pray.